Um, I was horribly addicted to pornography half of my life. I haven't been for half of my life at all. That was W. Paul Young, New York Times bestselling author of The Shack and Crossroads. This is season three, episode 56 of the ASI podcast. My name is Russ Shaw. I apologize for some of the audio in this interview. It was my first Skype interview where I recorded a Skype conversation. So bear with me here. The website for this uh, podcast here is ASI247.org. Hit the subscribe button and go back an episode if you'd like to hear the first part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, this is part two. Get right into it. I'm just a father and a, and a son and a brother, a husband, and there's no relational integrity between those. Then, then the whole point, if God's like that, then I should be like that. Then it's, I'm supposed to be trying to be the best brother I can be and the best, but it's got nothing to do with relationship, right? right. I'm, just, I'm just trying to perform as the best brother. So when God is, you know, in the, in the son role, he's just trying to be the best son, but it's, there's no relationship there. And I think that's the, the falseness of modalism that we're not talking about that. So because there is other centered self-giving love and the son never becomes the father and the father never becomes the spirit. That's the beauty that oneness is a celebration of the other. So we're created inside that kind of reality, not a modalistic reality, but a relational one. And that, that is a fundamental reason I think why this healing process requires the other. Right. It's designed that way. God, this is a God who has never done anything alone. Yeah. Ever. 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 Right? Even invented time not alone. No. no. <laughs> yeah. and, and nothing was created alone. Yeah. Nothing has been experienced alone. Right? right? And so aloneness is not part. Oneness, yes. Oneness is very different than aloneness, and um, and oneness, um, aloneness, the the dark side of that is loneliness, where you think you are alone, right? And that's contrary to the relational reality in which we are created and exist. Right. And that that darkness is a terrible darkness. That's what uh, Mother Teresa called, you know, the great sickness of the American West was loneliness because they cut themselves off from real relationship because we're designed and we're created inside and for and by relationship. I'm glad you brought up Mother Teresa too, because it's, uh, it's punching through like one thing that she did. And I think something that you you do with the shack um, is, is kind of bust that, that little, that thin layer on our, between our heart and what we know we need to know to survive, 
right? Like I don't want people to see my dirty basement, but you, you kind of pierce that and, and she does as well. And then I was thinking about um, what you were saying about relationship and, and God and then the female aspect of God. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of Christians who are going to raise their eyebrows about Oprah Winfrey praying God in a movie, but <laughs> she's an actress. All right. I mean, come on. She's a talk show host and an actress. And, and I think that it's important maybe in this day and age to start looking at that female aspect of God, especially in a world where, you know, pornography is so rampant. Um, our, uh, how much of this is our relationship with our mom and, 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 and a lot of guys don't know how to be around women in this day and age and in the modern world and women, you know, trying to approach church and how their, you know, their relationship with God is. Um, but yeah, Mother Teresa had, had a lot of, uh, she, she broke through a lot of barriers religiously with, the, with Catholics even, which is, which is amazing, right? Yeah. All of those things are involved in this conversation. You know, the uh, orthodox theology is that God is neither male nor female. Right. All, of, all of maleness, all of the paternal uh, is, originates in God. All of the maternal originates in God. Right. But the uh, masculine is still in part being Jesus. So Jesus comes in as, as a man, as a dude. Right. But prior to the incarnation, was Jesus male? Right. No. Jesus was the Word, yeah. and the Word incarnated male. Why? Why? And I and I I know a couple reasons why Jesus came as a male as opposed to a female, and one was he had to go to the place of deepest loss. Right. Because Scripture is very clear. Eight times in the New Testament, there's two words in the Greek for man. One means generically a human being, anthropos. The other one is specifically male, an heir. And the references to one through one man sin entered the world is an heir, male. Right? right so right. and both references to her are that she was thoroughly deceived. So through one male, sin enters the world. And this is part of the basis for understanding that the greatest point of loss comes through the male. And this is this ties into the virgin birth and all these other kinds of elements of theology. And, um, and, what, and because it says Jesus was not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of an, an heir, a male. Right? right and right. so he, the choice in the incarnation to be male, in part, is the choice to go and rescue all of humanity right down to the greatest point of loss which was male. And um, so that's part of it. And, and the, the beauty is that prior to the incarnation, you have a God who is, who is fundamentally neither male nor female, but all male, female. Because God doesn't create a creation that is not um, within God's very nature and being himself. Right. I will, I will make them male and female after my own image. Right. Genesis. Yeah. And he, and he made him male slash female. So Adam's very being was a composite being initially. Right. And then um, she was just asleep within him. But, uh, you know, and, and we could get into a big conversation. This is what I'm actually, my next novel I'm working on is right inside this conversation. So. Oh, cool. So, yeah. 
So I'm kind of uh, immersed in this whole thing at the moment. But yeah, and and a lot of it is men don't know who they are. And here's here's maybe a turn on this conversation that's important. Why do we not involve ourselves with pornography? Why do we make the change to stop? What? How does that happen? I mean, what is our what is our understanding that will empower our ability to not be involved with this destructive addiction? I think it's aloneness. <laughs> I think a big part of it's aloneness. You do pornography alone. You masturbate alone. The, in the the great uh, modern day philosopher uh, uh, Louis C.K. <laughs> comedian today did a. I I actually played a teeny tiny clip of that on on the podcast a, a while back um, on one of his shows where where this guy, not a Christian guy, right, not a theologian, not a recovery guy. Um, goes into this thing, right? Like that's his thing. Like he's he's invited. It's a comedic thing, but he's invited on the show as a guest. It, uh, there's a woman, Christian woman, who's has this kind of against masturbation, you know, thing, and and he's uh, he's on the opposite side for masturbation, <laughs> right? And so he's invited in to do this this talk. But the this this episode of, of his show, which which is you know, it's not a Christian show. It's a it's you know, it's it's an adult show. It's on at night. It's on FX. Um, and he explores this the aloneness, how it's just something. It's just it, I'm alone and I'm tired of myself and it's not working. You know, it has the power to consume me. And I think that's all not just pornography, but I think drugs. I think of uh, Jim Morrison, who. Um, some of his philosophy and getting with with the doors and and just exploring um, intoxication because I think he would he would deal with that same issue like why not drugs and and maybe we're seeing some of that today with a lot of the uh, psychopharmaceuticals which I'm not against but I think they're overprescribed because we just want to we just want to if I could take a pill Paul and just fix this that would be so much better than dealing with the messy shack man yeah. Man, yeah. I just get a prescription. I don't want to bring people in my basement. There's holes in the floor, you know that that kind of thing. Maybe it's, and that's what's good for us. Like I've I've told people that like going into groups, it was hard. It was scary. Some of the hardest stuff I had to do was was just blah, you know, just not have a right or wrong about how everything's coming out of me. But I just hurt some of these atheists. Like I sure tell me these atheist guys, and they're they they'll say there is no God. And let me tell you how pissed off I am at it, right? Yeah. Like just if it's a science thing, like that's always my – I used to get in these debates with people, Paul, and, and now I've brought it down to this one just just easy truth. Um, I can't prove there is a God. You can't prove there isn't one. So both of us, we're living our lives by faith. And if there's anything that, that I've learned is that it's, it's life-giving to, to open myself up to people. And to let people in my in my stupid shack, you know, yeah. as messy as it is, as stupid as it is, you know, it's like my wife was like, well, we had a we had some friends coming over, and it's like, well, we got to clean the house. I go, you know what? Leave the house messy. I almost do it as a point. Like, if you don't want to come in my house when it's messy, then I don't, let's have a test to see what kind of friend you are. <laughs> you know, I don't know. 
I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, Paul, but that's what's good about you. We can think out loud together. This, that's what kind of a conversation this is. Yeah, so let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. As, as a human being, mm-hmm. as a male, tell me the truth of who you are. What is the truth of who you are? What is the deepest truth of Russ? What, tell me something that is the truth of who you are. The truth of who I am. Yes. That's an interesting question. I am a, uh, I'm a walking conundrum in your life. You're say that again because I'm, 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 I'm a walking, feeling, seeing creation of God. That's kind of a conundrum in time. I I see my life as that, and as I I see it as sort of a a puzzle. Not that that I'm. I used to see it as a puzzle that I had to solve. But now, as I get closer to God, maybe I'm seeing it. And this isn't the right answer. It's just an answer, right? I'm just, this is that you just, boom, you hit me with that. That's good. Um, but it's it's something that's being solved. And, and it's, I don't know. Is it, is it fundamentally good? Is it fundamentally good? I don't know. Is it? Yeah, I guess so. It will be good. Because I no, trust God. Is it? When I trust God, I see it as good. But that's that's one of those good root questions. Like I think that if it's not good, then where am I at? Like if I can if I could ask myself that question at some dark times in my life, a few weeks ago with all this stuff coming out about Mars Hill and and people asking questions and like what, you know, and and, and I was I really struggle with and I still struggle with it. I know that I've I've studied psychology, Paul. I could tell you psychologically all the books that relate to this, but I, I was really dealing again with some, some toxic shame and I was for a few months, but this time it wasn't about pornography and stuff like that as much as it was, how could you be a part of this place that was so corrupt? And that's one thing that I had to look back on is that Marshall was good to me for a while. Marshall changed my life. Pastor Mark Driscoll changed my life. Guys in, in redemption groups at Mars Hill church, that was a very positive impact. I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for, for Pastor Mark starting that church and, and those guys in, in recovery groups and just gritty Ballard, man. It just <laughs> none of it was the way Christians should act or be <laughs> in some of these groups, Paul. It was beautiful, and it really impacted my soul. And so I guess, yeah, that's one of those questions that in the deep, dark places I would have to ask myself. Is it is it fundamentally good? Yeah. And and deeper than that, are you at the core of your being good? It depends on what day it is. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I'm not talking about how it presents itself. I'm talking about what is the truth of your being? What, I, is, I, what is the deepest, most fundamental truth of your being? And the reason that I'm asking this is this. Wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. That's wholeness. Wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. So if you don't know what the truth of your being is, Mm -hmm. then you cannot. All you're going to do is some form of self-exertion and self-discipline 
to try to cover up what you actually believe the truth of your being is. So the question about the truth of your being, and it's at the core of this issue of pornography and everything else. And let me put it this way to you. I was, because of the sexual abuse and, you know, however all that works out, um, I was horribly addicted to pornography of half of my life. I haven't been for half of my life at all. And it's not because of accountability groups. It's not because of self-discipline. It's not because of letting people into my basement. Um, it's because I finally began to know the truth of my being. Right? right? I believe now that I am a very good creation. And that is more fundamentally true than to me, about me, than all the damage in my life. But I've lived my life as if the damage were the deepest truth of my being. And then I tried to repress that damage in one way or the other in order to create a facade in the most positive sense to cover over what I believed about the truth of my being, which was I was depraved, I was a piece of shit, I was, you know, whatever, whatever you want to say. But that I believed that that was the truth of my being, was that I was not good, right, right. that I was not worthy, that I was not this. And my theology had, re had supported that, right? You're not going to break any of these kinds of addictions if it is just a temporary covering over what you believe about the truth of your being. Right. That's under that's under the behavior, right? Because I think we can we can attach our behavior so much to our being, and that's not really who we are in the in the shack, so to speak, right? Yeah. So the reason that I'm not involved in pornography, mm -hmm. the reason that I've got boundaries from inside, self control comes from inside, self discipline is outside, right? right? The reason that I don't do these things anymore is because I know the truth of who I am. Right. I don't. My nature is not to objectify another human being. That is not my nature. My nature is not to hurt anyone. My nature is not to be unkind. Is not, my nature is not disrespectful. Right. And because I know who I am, the way of my being matches it. And it's so much easier if I know who I am, nobody can tell me who I am. Right. Right. But don't you get to those kind of Roman seven times, Paula, where you're just you're just tired or you're hungry. And yes, this may not be your nature and it's not my nature. Like, I don't want to be a total asshole to my wife. But sometimes sometimes I am or, or my kids, you know, I mean, I love my kids and my kids are older now. And and I try like I want to be the best dad. But sometimes I'm just a, I'm just an absolute jerk like if i mean I and mean, we all get that like and it's just like this i mean you don't get enough sleep i don't okay, get enough let's to change, eat. change your language a little bit right sometimes i act like an absolute jerk right but it's right. not because i am one oh. see again you're mixing um your behavior from your being with being right and this is second corinthians five this is this is we judge no person that includes ourselves according to the flesh because we know the truth Right. right. 
and we're learning how to agree. That's the work of, of God in our lives, is to learn how to agree with the truth of who we are. Right. We're not going to make these transitions until we start, you know, even inside that language, we are identifying again ontologically that, that we are by nature a jerk. So, so sometimes we just act like one, right. you know, to, to use a flip side, uh, uh, a good side analogy, nobody in, in the Bible prays for patience. Nobody does. And uh, you won't find a prayer for patience. And that's because the understanding was the, that God, who is patient, you know, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is a description of God. Right. That God, God, who is by patient, has come to live inside of me and joined patience herself to my character. Right. So I, by nature, am patient. When I act unpatient, impatient, I am actually going contrary to my nature. Right. Right. And yes, I live inside of a mortality that is crumbling and deteriorating, and I get tired, and I'm more susceptible to acting according to a lie in those, in those moments. So I, I've learned over time, this is part of the beauty of becoming older, is that you learn the kinds of triggers that push you into the place where you are susceptible to a lie. Right. And so there are certain things that I refuse to watch. Not because of some external uh, accountability group, and not because of some not because of some sense of God's punishment or judgment or any of that kind of stuff. I just know who I am, and I know that stepping over into into that is to open myself up to a lie in a way that this mortality, mine, because of its conditioning and everything else, is still not fully healed from. Right. right. And that becomes boundaries from the inside out and not walls from the outside in. Right. True. Right? Yeah. That's one of my, my things, uh, accountability software and stuff like that, which I all think are great. I mean, that's a good little it's a good little fence to have between you and the porno. But ultimately, I've always been honest enough with myself to say, if I wanted to look at porn, I'm going to look at porn like that was just part of my deal. Like I, if there's going to be a founder if there's going to be some kind of a, a gateway thing it's got to be in my want to's and that's what you're kind of addressing in it it, it changes our want to's when you well, start to address your being on a biblical agreeing with god about who we are on the inside when we start agreeing with him on who we are on the inside then it starts to change what we do doesn't it without the stuff the outside in stuff like that was one of the most that was a big part of my coming back to god too paul was i had a pastor who okay here's here was my deal i i just got to the point where i thought this is all bullshit and fairy tales and i'm you know i don't care about god but i, I couldn't afford a real therapist so <laughs> i'm in this pastor's office and i kept bringing the bible in, and i'm a fairly sharp guy right i've read the bible so i'm like okay here's where it contradicts itself here and i had all these theological arguments on why it's not real and it's all just fake and just phony and and this pastor pastor rick up in marysville would he looked me in the eye and he said russ he goes you keep bringing me these things about this book that you think it, it's something that you take and you push in from the outside he says, you think, he says, you think you can push it in from the outside? He says, Russ, it starts in here. It starts in the heart and it grows from the inside out. Yeah. And that blew my mind. <laughs> when I finally started to think of it that way, it's like, wait, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it as a, as a book of rules or something like that, but that's not. Well, it's, it's even more fundamental than that. As long as you can keep this conversation in my head, I don't have to worry about my penis. 
<laughs> That's right. There you go. That's very true as well. It's very true. Absolutely. Um, you've also inspired me. I wasn't going to talk about this, but you, you've inspired me to. I was starting to write a book when this whole Marcel stuff blew up. All right. I had a book in mind. I thought I thought it would, I'm from in a pretty healthy place. This is going to be cool. I'll start a book, you know. And and then this whole Marcel thing happened, and I'm like, I just started to doubt, like. What are the roots of what I even believe anymore? You know, just and it was that that voice of shame back in my head. Like I thought I, I thought I had that. You know, like you were saying, you think we think we have our, our crap together from the outside in, but man, it just it attacked my being. Um, so I, I started writing my my own story. You were inspired by, uh, 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 you know, wanting to write like a kind of a Christmassy winter story, and and I I've always been fascinated with vampires and werewolves. So I started writing kind of a, a vampire story because a, a year ago I started doing some research on the, the vampire metaphor. All right. So the, the Dracula was the first book on vampires where there's a character like this is a dude. The Dracula is a vampire, but he's a guy. And uh, it came out about 30 years after Darwin's book, um, you know, The Origin of the Species. And actually, we had a darker title when it first came out, but it started to pick up steam as a worldview that people were starting to attach themselves to. And, and my idea, and I, I tried to do some research on Bram Stoker, the guy who wrote the story. Not a lot about him, but he was a playwright. He he was probably Catholic, and and loved Jesus, loved God, and wanted to maybe flirt with the idea of okay, let's say there is no God, then who what am I? What am I? What if I'm just based on animal lust? What if I'm just a creature that's highly evolved um, on this planet? And what would that look like if that if that thing met another another you know another course of evolution and just became this this dark vampire creature? So I think that that's one of the things that vampire stories. It's just weird, but vampire stories were one of those things that kept coming. Like the Holy Spirit used vampire stories. Paul to help me see like just what you're saying that I'm not this, this horrible, uh, you know, bloodthirsty. Um, if you look at vampires, the, the metaphor is brilliant because they, they, they lurk in the dark, afraid of the cross. Don't tend to hang out. <laughs> they're not real social creatures. You well, know, if you're a woman, they're the perfect man who will suck the life out of you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, such a mix of metaphors. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting, man. Thanks. Thanks again for, for doing this, uh, this interview, um, parables. It's a good story. You know, any, any good story, like you were saying is, is fictional truth, right? Donald Miller is doing this thing called storyline where he he talks about that kind of stuff too, that we're all God is, we're a subplot in, in God's huge story. Um, yeah, let me let me speak to one thing that you you brought up, and that is, we live in a world full of institutional systems, and and the way that a lot of us grow up, we learn to create an identity from them, and religious ones have incredible power oh, yeah. um, to hook us, and at some point, the desire of God is for our freedom, that gives us the freedom to be part of institutional religious systems or not. And that is a day-to-day -day part of an ongoing walk. You know, um, 
One of the good things about religious institutional systems, and there are quite a few, uh, religious systems have done a lot of great things on the planet. A lot of destruction, but a lot of great things. And whether it's health and education and and uh, working with the poor, there's just, you could, there, a science has come out of fundamentally religious frameworks. Um, and the, But they've done a lot of hurt and uh, uh, they've created power systems where, you know, uh, where God is no longer necessary for them to function, it's money that's necessary, all these things. But they're, they're, they're humanly created things, but we live in a world full of them. Mm-hmm. Part of the beauty of, of what they do is that they have an ability to drive us to helplessness in a way that few other systems do, right? Because it will dismantle us to some of the core questions, like the ones that you're asking, right. um, and the ones that you're struggling with regard to Mars Hill. The beauty is, is that as far as uh, Mark is concerned and um, is that, you know, Papa's especially fond of him. God cares more for Mark Driscoll than he ever did for the church as, a, as an institutional structure. You know, that's just a system. Right. So the, a brand, the, huh? a brand right? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to give it a more crass word, yeah. Because uh, the church... The church is a community of people. It's 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 not something that can be housed and boxed and everything else. And it's always been people. It's never the okay. the building and the program and all that kind of stuff. We baptize it that way, and it's again our use of language that begins to dictate to us what we believe, and uh, begin to change some of the core ways we look at things. Um, I did have a conversation with Mark because he didn't want to meet me in public, and which was fine. Okay. Um, I invited him to. Um, and then he asked, I asked him if I could, if I could meet with him on his terms and he said, yes. And I met with him in his office and we had about 45 minutes, a really great conversation actually. Mm-hmm. And about halfway into the conversation, he said, you know, did you realize that, uh, every time I tried to introduce a theological conversation here, you turn the conversation back to relationship. And I said, yeah. I said, you and I, we're not going to agree theologically. <laughs> so so I, I wanted to talk about something that's actually real, you know. And then I got to ask some relational questions. It had nothing to do with whether he, you know, bashed the shack or not. Actually, that didn't bother me a bit. And, um, and it was, you know, tell me what's going on. And, and it, we had a very good conversation. Regardless of all this, how this all falls out and everything else, people are going to have to deal with some fundamental questions about their, what do they hear themselves and how does that process happen? Where is their freedom? Are they going to take the risk of relationship again? What does this mean going forward? All of these things are so beautiful because that's space that is now opened up in which people can hear for themselves what the Spirit is saying to them. Great thing. It's one of the, it's one of those backhanded gifts that institutional systems give to us. Yeah. And that's something I, I struggle with too. Like I, I talked about um, in my story, I wrote kind of a public statement about leaving Mars Hill, which I didn't want to write, but I knew doing this podcast and about half the people who listen don't even like <laughs> don't have their each issues. Right. So uh, I knew that it was something that would be important for me to write. And I did. And I ended it with uh, John 10, 10, where Jesus talks about shepherding, you know, like that he is the shepherd. The church is way bigger than, than Mars Hill or, 
the Pope and the Catholics or the Baptists or, you know, insert denomination here. Um, it's, it's Jesus who's shepherding the church. And if, if it gets busted up, then, then there's good news there. And, and while I, I can agree with that and I know it, and that's one of those things, like I know it, I know it, Paul, but I'm still in that sad place. Like I'm, I'm still in a hurt place over it. Yeah. And it's worth being pissed off. A lot of us are. Yeah. You know, things that are wrong, the right response is anger. So, you know, God's angry a lot. Yeah. He just doesn't use that anger to do more damage. Right. And um, so being angry about it and being sad about losses, yeah, it's like my relationship with my dad, you know. I've got huge losses there. Now, there's been huge healing there. Um, there are lots of things that are not restored that probably won't be on this side of this physical dimension. Um, so like in the shack, I put my hope for my relationship with my dad in chapter 15. But it's not because it's been it's it's made it there yet, and um, so it's it's a loss, and I'm aware of the loss. It's just it's just not a wounding anymore, and that's part of the process, is that it is a wounding right now, yeah. you know, um, because people people do stupid things, dumb things for dumb reasons, but we don't know even why we do them. You know, what the issues of, of insecurity and power and covering up our own shame and things like that then emerge themselves as expressions of an institutional structured system. Institutions have no life of their own. They have less life than rocks. <laughs> well, it's true. You take the people out of an institutional system, the thing doesn't even to dust. It just disappears. Yeah. And um, so it's human beings that actually matter in this. Yeah. It's not the existence even of a system called Mars Hill that matters here. It's Mark Driscoll. It's you. It's every person. That's, they're the people. They're the ones that are eternal beings in all this. Right. And, and, and then we can go, okay, institutional systems are there. Initially, they were created usually to serve us. And what happens is they end up, we end up serving these things that don't even exist, the matrix, right? Right, right. And, um, and that's not the point. The point is, all right. And this is where forgiveness comes in. This is where when you act like a jerk, you learn how to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Right? This is not because jerkiness is part of your being. Mm. And, and this is where people just opt out because they don't want to ask for forgiveness. So that they just say, well, I, you know, I'm just a jerk. That's just that's just who I am, which is not the truth. No. As as a person thinks they are, so are they. Yeah. You know, you and think you get to those points where your actions speak so loud, I can't hear a word you say. And that, and that's something that I've used in recovery and and something that I've I've coached people with. Um one of the things that happened is you know, you talk about the the relationship. I don't, you know, when it comes to church stuff or the relationships there, I guess I never saw, I, I didn't, you know, if you have pastor on your thing, that really doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Can I open up to you? Can I confide in you? Can I, um, can I let you in my basement kind of thing? When I, when I can approach someone with that kind of title and then they're cool about me because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a church guy, you know, Paul, I'm like, you know, I'm the guy who drops the F word in Bible study. You know, I mean, that's just me. That's just 
that's where I'm at. So uh, when I can actually get to those points, and that's usually when those F words come out, when I start to get to that uncomfortable, vulnerable place, you know, and some of it's angry, you know, and, and when, when those guys with those titles can let me in there, um, then I see that, wow, this is, this is a real place. This is a place I could trust. This is a place where, you know, these guys who even have church titles can, can be cool with Russ Shaw. And when, okay. And then, so this is what, one of the things that happened, the wounding, one of my friends, uh, pastor Phil is one of those guys, him and his wife are both those type of people where, you know, you just let them behind the counter. And, uh, and he was fired for not, he was let go. He wasn't on paid staff, but he was let go for not signing a no compete clause. And and that's one of those things like you, you were saying, so the church was saying, um, we're going to try and make amends. We're going to reconcile with these pastors. We're sorry. And then after they said that a, a m- couple months after they said that they fire my friend for, for not signing a no compete clause. And it was like, Boom, you know, and I always gave them the benefit of the doubt when they let people go. Like, well, I don't know what happened, but I know this man, and I yeah. knew his story, and that, I guess, that wounded my whole sense of what what a church even is. But yeah, you're right. It's it's kind of the institution. The institution became bigger than the people, and I get that because an institution of people can be kind of like a Jenga puzzle, <laughs> and so one guy at the bottom so. Well, if, you know, if institutions weren't made up of people, they'd be a lot simpler. Yeah, it'd be like <laughs> smartphone. I heard cognitive scientists say that. As cognitive scientists said, this is this is a brilliant piece of uh, of technology right here. But if I don't pick it up and want something to do with it, it's nothing. It doesn't do anything. It's like a rock. Yeah, but you, but you can pick it up and do incredible damage oh, in the yeah. lives of somebody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah, or you yeah. can you could pick it up and do incredibly beautiful, wonderful things with it, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's you that empowers it. Exactly. And, and so the system, the institution, is never should never be called the church, and we should never be impressed by title anyway. Authority comes from the authenticity and the integrity of a human being. It doesn't come from a position, not inside the world that we have now become a part of in terms of the kingdom. You know, this is supposed to be a uniquely uh, different kind of place. The church, to use Capon's language, the church is a community of people who exhibit and express what is already true for everybody. Right. Right. right? Brilliant. It, it, it is brilliant. Yeah. And it's, we know the truth of our being. This is why we don't have to judge anybody according to the flesh. But in the world, you create identity and value and significance and meaning and purpose out of your association with an institution. Right. Right. But I'll, I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit with uh, with the church being a uh, the church. So, OK, a group of people come together and yeah, it's an institution, but it's also an entity. So the church and, and there's these, uh, you know, metaphors in the Bible of the, the bride being the church, right? But the church isn't just one individual. The church is a group of people and they're kind of the bride. Yeah. And you I guess it's marriage is an institution. Yeah. Yeah. You do. What's that? Oh, yeah. It's an institution. Sure. But it's a relationship. But it's also oh. a business thing that you put down on paper and say, yeah, I'm. So that business thing that's put down on paper, you think that's what defines the a marriage? That's no. what it is. 
No, it doesn't. But it helps, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. It makes it a little more concrete. It 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 it, it requires commitment, doesn't it? To to say that I'm going to be a member of this place. Like if I'm going to be a member of a church, that's a little different than just showing up on Sunday and listening to a speech and clapping your hands and See, the problem is you already are a member of this community of faith. Right. You don't have to identify with a particular institution to be a member of the body of Christ. Right? This is, where we, this is where we've gotten sideways and ended up with, what, 36,000 denominations? <laughs> it's true, yeah. That's what my Catholic friend would say. You know why this whole Mars Hills thing's happening? Because you're not Catholic, Russ. That's why. <laughs> like, well, and, and he's right in the sense that Catholic just simply means worldwide, you yeah. know, you know cos, cosmologically present. Yeah. So, and that's what was in the early creeds. We believe in the Catholic Church, which is not talking about the Roman Catholic Church we're talking about the Catholic, the the inclusive nature of the community of faith. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So marriage, marriage is not uh, a matrix. You know, marriage is the commitment that is celebrated in front of a community of people of my choosing you and you choosing me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? And it is it is a relationship. Mm. And. Um, and that relationship is going to be as unique as the two people who make it up. Right. If if we define it institutionally, we're going to be in a in a world of hurt. Right. Um, right. Because then you've got roles and definitions and titles and all that stuff. They don't work well inside um, a real living, breathing relational mystery that is relationship. Right. And right. Um, and yeah, they I I love the reality and the metaphor of, of marriage, a commitment between two um, who join themselves together in commitment and a celebration in front of the community. That's great, but it's not an institution. It's a relationship right. and, uh, and it's gonna be unique. It's gonna be as unique as the two people who make it up. And, um, and, I, and I think that's true for any gathered community of people that community will be as unique as the people who make it up, which means that every person matters. And then you go back to metaphors like the church is a family. Well, in a family, there is no room for notoriety or platform. Right. I mean, where in a family do you have platform? Are you kidding? Your kids will go, dad, who do you think you are? <laughs> exactly. You know? And, uh, and yeah. Well, God, God gave us teenagers to know that how he feels. Oh, wives. <laughs> You know, you know, for us. And, uh, um, you know, and so there a family moves at the pace of the slowest. Institutional systems don't. Mm. Right. Right. You move at the pace of the weakest. If you got somebody comes into your family and they have a disability and um, I tell you, everything screeches to a halt. And you move at the pace of the slowest because the slowest matters. But in institutional systems, the system is what matters, right? And the blood of a system is not the living life of Jesus. It is money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Don't work without money. Well, it's just true, but where does it, why, where, where does the money come from? Money comes from people. Money is the life energy of, of people, isn't it? I mean, that's... That's Ravi Zacharias' term. It's congealed life. I exchanged time and energy for this that I give here or there. 
right? Congealed life. So it's the same, same kind of idea. And I think it, you know, it's that institutions, they're not alive. So they don't need anything living in order to perpetuate them. They, they need some exchange where human life has been exchanged for some kind of an interactive device, money. Right. And uh, that's what keeps the system going. Right. Uh, it's not it's, that people don't trust the, the, the they don't trust the system as much as they don't trust. Like when you're asking for my money, that's a, another thing. There's a there's a I read an article in Christianity Today. There's some megachurch pastor who's starting a sermon series called "The Church Just Wants Your Money," <laughs> which which sounds brilliant, right? Like that'll I'll, I'll listen to that because that's that's where the distrust comes in, isn't it? It's not that we don't it's, we distrust the system. And, and I would say that that title is wrong to get from the get-go. Right. Because, again, it's defining the truth of their being as needing money. Right. And saying the church needs your money, which is not true. The institutional system is not the church. Right. Let's get that really clear. Right. So, so the, the church does not want your money. The church is designed for relationship. It wants authenticity. It wants integrity. It wants participation. Yeah. It wants all the things that are true for relationship. That's what I thought was funny about it. It's kind of demonstrating absurdity by being absurd. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I get that. But the very identification that this is the church is wrong. Right. And so it's the parachurch organization that wants your money. Right. Now, that's a true statement. Uh -huh. Right. It's, it's that system that comes alongside in order to survive. It needs your money. Uh -huh. Right. And... Uh, but it's not the church. No. It's the parachurch organization. That building and construct and whatever the program is and that denomination and however it is, whatever that religious institution is, is not the church. It's not. It's not. No. Never no. has been. No. But we baptized that word so that it would then become the definition of church. And we lost the community. It's true. That's something that's in, you know, there's, you hear this piece of scripture that's totally taken out of context. And I've heard it over and over again, where the, where the poor woman comes to, to, to the church, to the synagogue, right? And, and gives her little piece. Like that was the last she ever had. And, and you hear some pastors will say this to like get people to give, like, this is all she had. But if you put that thing in context, Jesus is going, I'm going to tear this place down in three days. Like, you know, you, she's giving all that she has. It's not necessarily a, it's not necessarily a, a, a good thing. I mean, it's just what it is. I mean, she's giving to the system as it exists at that time. But it wasn't that, I mean, and he was saying, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know, was he, I don't think he was saying it was good or bad. What did he? It was I, I, what it was. I wrote a story about that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and, uh, and, We're going uh, over time. Thank you so much for spending this much time with me. I know you're busy. No I, I wrote a story about it in which Jesus and the disciples are in the shadows watching this. Uh -huh. And because one of the big deals that was going on is that um, the rich and the religious would make a big show. Uh, and it, uh, it was almost a competition between each other, how much they could give. Oh, yeah. And so they would they would come through and make this big deal about Okay. Who's the biggest? Yeah. Who's gonna Who's gonna be the biggest giver? Because that's the word that's gonna go out, and uh, and the disciples are duly impressed by how much they're giving and all that, and um, and uh, and then as uh, as they leave, unbeknownst to anybody, 
this woman who is mostly blind uh, stumbles her way in and you see this massive difference between who she is and what matters to her and who they are and what matters to them. Right. I mean, right. She is seeing through this to something way bigger. They're seeing through what they're giving to popularity, notoriety, platform, position, power in the community. She doesn't care about any of that, <laughs> right? She is looking as a statement of trust. Right. See, theirs is no statement of trust at all. Right. Not at all. It's show in order to buy something. She's not yeah. buying anything, right? Yeah. She is coming to give everything. And uh, because that's where her heart is. It's a statement of trust on her part. Yeah, totally different worlds. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Gets to that root of, of what's good, you know. If God can work in those men, maybe there's hope for us all, <laughs> right? God can work there in those guys. Guys like Peter give me hope, right? I mean, that guy. Um, a few thoughts, some closing thoughts, on Paul, on uh, on on what you're doing with this uh, with this speaking deal with uh, where is God when? Um, I think that is so important, and we've talked about. Uh, you know, behaviors that can tend to own us. And we've talked about trusting um, church and, and, and relationship and um, getting into our messed up shacks. Uh, speak to that, uh, the person who may be listening who doesn't want to do much to do with church or relationship. Maybe they have some fear of it. Um, maybe the guy who's flirting with the idea of God who, who was an atheist and maybe chose that as a, a sort of religion, like religion has been redefined as worldview. I've, I've, I've talked to some, some atheists or agnostics about that. It's like, what if it's just another religion, dude? Like you're just choosing another, another faith path. That's not proven. <laughs> it's just the truth. Most, most of my friends who are atheists, um, they don't believe in the same God that I don't believe exists either. So right. you know, we're, we're on the same page. And, and, and I, I love McLaren's little, yeah, he had an interview where he said, you know, every movement of faith has to go through atheism. You have to deny the God that you thought existed, uh, you know, or the one that you didn't think existed that you were mad at. You know, <laughs> there, there is always this move. So I've got a lot in common with that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the the more fundamental issues are the relational and integrity issues. Is is there an authenticity between my longings, the person that I long to be, and the person that I am in terms of practice? You know, is is there a brokenness there? Because I think everybody longs for authenticity. Everybody longs for integrity, where both sides of the equation match. That's when you experience peace, is when everything fits, right? Regardless of what your circumstances are. This is circumstance independent, right. where your inside world matches your outside world. When I can be the same guy with my friends as I am with, guys at church, as I am with my family. When you can be that guy in all those just not be this divided out thing, right? Like kind of yeah. Well, and that's why I didn't know that was possible because when you grow up the way I did, you know, you become a performer that's unique to your audience. I mean, you're just constantly looking for the cues from outside 
in which you then respond. So you're one thing to one group of people, one thing to another. And there's no, uh, there's no integrity. You know, in, in my life, the process of coming to deal with the crap in your life and all that, very painful. And you're going to need help. Nobody, you cannot do this alone. There's no blue or red pill or extreme soul makeover or any of that kind of stuff. You, you got to have help. You got to let somebody in. And if you've got nobody you can trust, you pray that somebody comes into your world that you could take that risk with. Because you are not designed to do this alone. It's, it's just counterintuitive. And, um, and so in my life now, I have no secrets. I have no addictions. I am, um, I am the same person in every situation. I'm no different talking to you here as when I'm talking to a group of people or with my grandbabies or in a hotel room by myself, right? I'm no different. And I know, I know myself. I know when I'm tired, I don't make decisions. I'm not going to make any decisions when I'm tired or, or hungry or whatever. I know <laughs> these things, right? I know this is a point where I just need to sleep. I need to, I need, you right? So there are things that I've gotten to know about myself, about where my boundaries are, all of that. That's all part of the growing process of this. But I did it inside a, a bunch of relationships. I got people in my life that tell me the truth, that aren't impressed. And, <laughs> and, um, and that's a great, great gift. Yeah, you know? yeah. and, and I think that's what institutional systems do a lot, and you know this is that they begin to remove the people that will tell you the truth so that you could you only hear the projections of your own damage and your own imagination and, and the things that will bolster the places that are broken in your own heart. Right. And, um, and I'm just saying, man, you, you can't do this. And, and, and another thing I'd say is love the questions. Yeah. We, we yeah. live in a very Western, intellectual, rationalist mentality. And uh, especially in the religious I'm going to angry letter, bad review. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, isn't it about being right? You know, <laughs> and uh, that's much easier than be, you know, loving anybody. And uh, <laughs> exactly. so, so, you know, uh, love the questions and, and it is a process. I'd love to say that it's not a process because I process is painful and messy and, Asking for forgiveness is humiliating in the best possible way, but it is, it's part of the process. And, um, it's, and scary. it's scary though, Paul. Let me, let me go into this a little bit. I, I hear what you're saying, but it is so, um, if I, if I go ask, it, it freaks me out. It's, it scares the living shit right out of me. What, what do we do? What do we do with that? I mean, what do we do with the fear, I guess? Uh, one thing actually is, opening up myself and going, here's my vulnerable, like, what do I see? The, and the reason that we don't do it a lot of times is because we create an imagination of what it's going to look like when it happens. And it's too big and horrendous for us to actually tackle. So we'll put it off. Right. <laughs> right. The, the, the question is not how do we solve this whole big mess in one shot? Because I just want to get it over with. Right. It's not that. It's what is in front of me today. What is, you know, let's restrict the fear, stop future tripping, get to this place where we're just dealing with what's between now and the time I go to sleep. What is right here in front of me? What, what is being asked of me? What, what ha do I have an opportunity to participate in right here, right now, only inside this day? 
Right. And, and you learn not to spend today's grace on things that don't even exist. And a lot of fear is evidence that we are creative beings because we create these unbelievable, complex, fear-based imaginations that absolutely paralyze us in the process of coming to deal with our stuff. Because yeah. we can imagine... We, we imagine everybody's response. We imagine our response to their response. We imagine all the relationships that get destroyed. We then, uh, rather than do that, we then will take control of people's responses without them even knowing that they're making a response because we don't even tell them to begin with because we already know what their response is going to be. And therefore, <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, you, you begin to see. Says. You know what they're going to say. It's like right. a big bully on the playground again, you know, that follows you around and goes, you know what they're going to say. When you got to kick that dude out, man. Right. So we're going to say, all right, I'm not doing anything. It's safer, right? Because I've already figured out every permutation of every fear-based imagination, and I lose every one of them. Right. So, so you, we got to bring it back to today. What's in front of us today? What, what's at the top of in front of our face in this moment? What relationship? What issue of letting go or forgiveness or whatever? Because you know we're we're not designed. If our yoke is not easy and our burden is not light, we've picked up stuff that doesn't belong to us. And a lot of that is these fear-based imaginations. And learning to live inside just today. That's it. That's the only way that you can begin to take the incremental steps in the process of healing. Is restrict the universe down to today and live inside this day. Tomorrow you'll get grace for whatever tomorrow holds. And, and, that, and tomorrow you're not to be making decisions uh, and trying to solve things that are a week away, a month away, you know, like that job you're probably going to lose, that um, <laughs> medical illness you're going to experience, that terrible thing that's going to happen, the, the thing that's going to happen in the world, that you know, all of that. All of that, it's way too massive, it way is. too big, and it doesn't even exist for the most part. Mm -hmm. yeah. True. Yeah. And just steps, just little tiny increments you know, like you said, the uh, incremental process of, of growing and maturing is, is brutal, but it's, it's real and it's life-giving. And you're worth it. That's the point. It's not, it's not the outcome that validates the process. It's the process itself inside of you. Right. It is, it is and we're, we are worth it. Aren't yes. We? Which goes those back. things like I don't know if that's a reformed thing with a lot of Christian theology, like oh, we're just we have to look at ourselves as these dirty little things, and and no, God died for us. Like God came into human flesh and and died for for you. And, and it's, it's more fundamental than that. See, that to me is a cop out. That's where you're going to define your worth based on what God has done. No, God doesn't do that. He defines your worth based on your creation. Right. It's a very good creation and a new one even. Right. And that's that's not with God doing anything. That is <laughs> right. who you are. This is why the work is worth it, because you are worth it. You were worthy and a very good creation from the start. And when you begin to understand that and get comfortable inside the uniqueness of your own skin and know who you are. Yeah. Porn can't tell you who you are, you know. Other people can't tell you who institutional systems can't tell you who you are. You already know who you are. Right. And then when they come with their stuff, 
you know they're not telling you who you are. They're telling you in the only way that they know how who they are. Right. Yeah. Getting to the getting to the roots of it, the bedrock of it. Yeah. Well, well you get an opportunity to live from the inside out instead of from the outside in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Being comfortable in your own skin. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul W. Paul Young, uh, author of Crossroads and The Shack, um, the, this uh, the speaking deal you're doing, I'm going to have the dates on the website for that as well. I think it's important what you're doing, and and I, I thank you for for continuing with uh, with not just your story, but encouraging other um, individuals like myself to to investigate our stories as well. You know, oh, honor to be in this spot. Uh, I think I had all this, you know, I thought I had the, 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 the addiction stuff, you know, all cured and conquered and the behavior stuff. And, you know, it, it just, you, you just get older and then there's just more, more things present themselves. And it's just different layers. You know, you're just going deeper. That's all. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Thanks again, Paul. You're welcome. Any, uh, any, any final thoughts for, for the listeners out there before you go? We are being pursued by a relentless affection that is who is good all the time and is always for us. Amen. Thanks again. Yes, that concludes my first interview with W. Paul Young. I've chatted with him a little bit on email. I'd love to do it again after I've read both of those books of his. He expressed some interest in uh, graciously coming back on the podcast uh, later on after I've read those two works, which would be awesome. Um, I know that Mr. Young is a controversial cat, all right, since uh, emails and some response from the first part of the interview. Um, if you want to send me an email, russ at asi247.org. Um, I'd love to interact with you about these interviews, questions or concerns. Um, I love that stuff, all right? Don't think you're bugging me. I, I actually like the debate and uh, the interaction around, um, you know, controversial authors and artists and topics, all right? Uh, again, russ at asi247.org, social media, all that stuff is on the website there at uh, asi247.org if you like to message me via social media. Um, the music that you heard during this podcast is by Devaroya Clark. And you can find her uh, more about her and more about the music at DeveroyaClark.com. If you don't know how to spell that, <laughs> I don't blame you. It's uh, you can go to the website and all of the music that I play, bumper promo music that I play on the podcast, can be found asi247.org. You click on the music tab. Um, I have a Spotify playlist. There is a list of the artists and uh, music that I've played on the podcast throughout Season 3. And if you want to go back Season 2, there's a link to that as well. Um, most of the music I've played on the podcast is right there on the website. ASI is a listener-supported podcast. Thank you for any donations you could send my way to keep this thing alive. Um, I appreciate your support. More than that, I appreciate your prayers 
for this ministry. I love you guys. That's not just lip service. I take uh, to heart the impact that this show has on, on minds and souls. All right, so keep me in your prayers, man, um, and I'll be praying for you. Until next time, bye. Bye.